For May 21st, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 203, Too Fast, Too Battleship. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From RIMPAC on the west coast of America... (laughs) No, I, I, the other joke I was considering was the solar eclipse has come, and now the podcast is joined. Um, I am here to join Battleship. I am Matthew Rather, your host, here with the panel uh, to talk about Battleship. The question of the week is different for every podcaster. So, first in the alphabet and first in our hearts, <laughs> Peter Fenzel, D4, that's, that's Delta 4. That's a that's a hit. <laughs> You've sunk my cruiser. I think it's a cruiser. Yeah, it's the one with bumps on top, not the smooth one, right? All right, I'll put the third one on the top. A two <laughs> miss. You sure that that's a miss? <laughs> <laughs> this game is riveting. This game is so much fun. If there's one thing I learned from this weekend, it's that actually playing Battleship is the most fun that you can have while naming letters and numbers in a random order. <laughs> Good lord. So yeah, so that's my answer. My answer was hit. You sunk my cruiser. Deal with it. That's my answer to your question. Thank you, sir. Mark Lee, uh, F9. I, I... That's, uh, that's Foxtrot Niner. Hit. Hit. <laughs> You sunk my space battleship Yamoto! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's awesome. It's going down in flames. Side note, happen- by the way, about the, ba- the board game Battleship, I would really love to see some take on, what is that uh, movie, that, with the Swedish movie, The Seventh Seal, The Seventh Sign, where uh, you, the guy plays uh, ch- death in a game of chess? They ought to be playing Battleship. Ought, internet ought to do that. I, be, I believe you're, you are thinking of the seminal classic, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Also that. Um, the, I, I kept referring to Battleship as the seminal summer action blockbuster uh, on overthinkingit.com. I, my, the point, the joke, which no one either picked up on or else thought was very funny, was that it is a film that's full of semen. Sing, uh, uh, moving uh, right along, <laughs> well, racking up uh, the chili peppers. I, uh, it's it's my turn. I'm quite not quite sure how to um, to pose this question to myself. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, E5, Echo 5. No one would put a, a ship right in the middle of the board <laughs> like that, right? And my answer is hit. You sunk my battleship. Uh, I am apparently that idiot who who put the battleship right in the middle of the board. And uh, our fourth panelist, uh, uh, special guest Ben Adams, an actual uh, United States Naval officer. Ben, welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. Hey, good to be here. Uh, And uh, I should also say Ben is the uh, author of a guest article on Overthinking It about Inception and quantum mechanics and the many worlds worlds hypothesis of quantum mechanics and an upcoming uh, article on intra-agency rivalry in Star Wars. So uh, look for that on Overthinking It. We're glad to have you. Ben, uh, your coordinates are D8. Miss. Yes. Ah. If, if you sink my ship, I get in a lot of trouble and probably get fired. So, <laughs> miss. 
Yeah, yeah, because you're the only one who's good at playing this game because you play it with real <laughs> ships. Yes, because it's it's just it's just the same. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as we saw in the uh, <laughs> you know in the weapons room of the uh, what was it the uh, Arleigh Burke class destroyer? Um, what was the name of the ship? John Paul Jones, right? In, yes, in, in the yeah, film I think Battleship. it was the, the yeah. JPJ. So, uh, welcome. We're very glad to have you on the podcast. Can can you say something? If if it's not a completely secret, if you don't, um, if you don't, uh, you know, if, have to kill us by telling us. Uh, well, uh, what do you actually do uh, in the Navy? Uh, so I'm a uh, surface warfare officer. It's uh, it's what the, the, all the guys in Battleship were. It means I deployed on ships. Uh, so. I start, I've been in the Navy about five years. Uh, I was on the USS Gettysburg, which is a cruiser. Uh, very, very similar to the ships, the, all the destroyers and stuff. And then the USS Halliburton, which is a frigate, which is not even close to those ships in terms of capability. But it's a lot of fun to drive, so it was fun. And then that was for four years. And then right now I'm at the Navy Satellite Operations Center out oh, here in Point Magoo. I see. So you're actually trying to find the aliens. Sort of, sure. <laughs> we'll say that. So, um, do do radio waves really look like the energy beams that uh, the satellite dishes were emitting uh, on Oahu? Ours don't. We, we we've got an antenna just like that, but I've never seen the the beam coming out of it. So maybe we just don't have the right. Maybe we don't, we're not doing it right. Yeah, they have better they have better antennae in in um, Hawaii. Uh, so is is um uh is your are your days spent sitting like Rihanna in front of a uh, in front of a display and you know, <laughs> noticing things that that uh, come across it? Uh, not right now. I see. Well, but I, I have had that job. I don't think was Rihanna an officer in the movie. No, she was. was uh, she was enlisted, but she she was uh, what uh, a um, a fireman, right? Uh, fire FC, a fire controlman. A fire controlman. So she's, oh, okay. but she seemed to know just about everything, every job on the ship. So I, I don't know. They let her go with the machine gun into like the commando situation too, right? Which seemed a little bit extreme. Well, also like the you, commanding officer, which also seemed a little extreme. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a lot of Navy ships where the CO is doing like frontline, you know, uh, yeah. frontline fighting through the PW. Also, the- also alien autopsy. Let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah. I specialize in the organizational management and the command and control for a mid-sized frigate. I also uh, fight the predator when I'm in my spare time. <laughs> I smear myself with mud and I bury myself in the ground and uh, uh, set up spear traps for him. That's, that's pretty much my job description. Uh, I also spent three years at Bear Stearns. So. <laughs> hey, hey ben, 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 so I have a, a specific question to ask you about. Uh, the movie and the characterization of naval officers. Um, so, uh, by the way, blanket spoiler alerts for Battleship. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen this movie yet, you really ought to. It's, it's really good. Of- <laughs> it delivers. It totally delivers. I, I'm not sure what it delivers, Pete. It's yeah, a movie let's, about let's come back to that. Anyway, yeah, back yeah to- I want to talk about that later. So, but let's let's nitpick. Okay, so so Ben, what, I, what I'm asking you about is the development, basically the the career path, the, the character development of a naval officer, uh, insofar as it's displayed in the movie, and the character development of uh, the main character that we follow, that's played by Taylor Kitsch, um, in that he goes from one scene being a uh, total loser, unmotivated, drunk, uh, convenience store breaking in, uh, dirt bag, into what a second lieutenant. Um, 
and uh, just to sort of walk us through, like, what would have had to have happened for him in those intervening years where we didn't even get a training montage or a clean yourself up montage? Like, what like, is what is in the realm of possible for that to have occurred? The it, it's possible, but the the time is way too fast because it's what like they actually say the year when they that bar scene is like two thousand six, right. and then the movie is in two thousand twelve. That's way too fast. Wow, even, even if six he, years too fast. He, even if he had graduated from the Naval Academy on that day, it would still take like probably eight years to get to be the weapons officer on a destroyer like that his job was. So that that was way too fast. I mean, he could do it. It'd just take a lot longer than it shows in the movie. Cause I, so, so time is one aspect of it, but the other more important part, I think, is temperament. Um, it, it, it's, you have to assume that you know, he was able to get, clean himself up to a certain degree to get to where he was, but he still shows a incredibly poor judgment on the soccer field by taking a penalty kick when he's concussed and then goes about you know, stomping around the deck uh, you know, in his you know, weapons control room saying that they're not going to learn anything during the naval exercise. <laughs> they're there to just um, uh, kill, kill, the, kill the enemy. Whoever he or she or, no, no, to defeat the other to defeat the other country's navies and be the best ship, right? Like to like to win, essentially. Yeah, not to learn. But he specifically says we're not here to learn. Right. That I mean, those guys exist, so so that part is you know, there there are guys I've definitely known guys that they're all about winning. But uh the part that's unrealistic is like you can be stupid and kind of get away for a long time in the Navy, but you can't have discipline problems. Like, there's pretty low tolerance for shenanigans out in town and things like that. So he'd probably get back. He'd probably have been bounced a long time ago for getting in fights or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's true. He did seem to not play well with uh, play well with others, right? Especially with uh, yes. the Japanese and really yeah, you fight- others. The, the guy he was fighting is a captain right. who's ridiculously high-ranked. So if you fight a Japanese captain, they, they don't let you go on the subsequent exercise. You're, you're, you're gone. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, is the, I, are the ranks – I've pulled up a Wikipedia so that we can, um, so that we can see what the, uh, what the Japanese naval ranks are. Um, I, but I'll, I'll, I'll look at that and report back to that. So, um, if, so here's another, uh, Ben, here's another practical question about actually, uh, about the actual Navy. Um, if the commanding officer and the executive officer are, are taken out by aliens, by aliens, (laughs) right? How many, um, how many people in the org chart down would Taylor (laughs) Kitsch be? Um, right. That is to say, is it is it uh, realistic that he's the next guy up uh, to command the the ship? That part's actually pretty realistic. It's it's conceivable because the so there's the captain, the XO, and then below that there's going to be four department heads, and they're all they're all pretty much at the same point in their career. So whoever of those department heads has been an officer the longest is the most would be, ne- okay, would be next in senior. line. Got it. But he, as we've already established, he's only been in for for five or six years, right? So, uh, I guess that I guess those aliens maybe took out all the other department heads as well. I, I guess that's that's one thing I was in note about the movie is that there's like four guys that do everything. There's no other officers. There's no other chiefs. There's like Taylor Kitsch, the chief, the second class, and a seaman, and that's it. They do everything, right? Yeah, it's and like the, the it's the Zach Morris style of naval staffing. <laughs> <laughs> right, whereas what whereas that that class of ship would have uh, what like 
350 soul support, right? Yeah, yeah, somewhere between 300 and 350, something like that. And so you'd have at least 20 or 30 officers. Sure. So, so how far down can you go in like this depth chart and still have people who are even capable of running the ship? Is it like is it how long does the how far does the succession go? Like, because I'm thinking like not just to this guy, but I'm particularly thinking of Jean Luc Picard, right? Where uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think exact, exactly when this was. This was uh, which ship was it? Was it the Stargazer? Um, where the ship was oh, the Stargazer? Yeah, that was the one where he was he was he was just he was a lieutenant commander on that one, and he resumed command of the of the vessel when the captain was killed. Um, so I guess what he was. He was uh, the same level as as the protagonist of Battleship, I guess, relative, if we assume that the Federation ranks are similar. Well, they're, uh, but they're not. Starfleet ranks are a whole... I actually okay. had, cause, I had cause to look this up the other day. And so, <laughs> like, I, I actually uh, could, could tell you a little bit about uh, United Federation of Planets Starfleet enlisted and officer uh, okay. ranks. Um, well, I'll go back to my basic question then, which is like how far down the depth chart, provided there's some sort of horrible alien-provided disaster, uh, can someone conceivably step up and take command of the ship? I mean, in, in, obviously, somebody has to do it. If so, if there's anybody left, somebody will do it. Um, but as far as like, as far like, as hey, capa- this is, yeah, as far as capability, there's probably a couple dozen people that would really have the the breadth of knowledge to have some chance of being able to, to effectively fight the ship. At, at, at that point, you'd really just be at the point where you're just going to sit tight after you get past that group of people. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, that's pretty good. That's like a couple of hostage situations you can get through. Like that's a couple of like crazy <laughs> missiles hitting the ship. I'm getting a little too dark on this. It's getting a little too dark. Battleship <laughs> was a fun movie. There was a lot of fun stuff. Well, that was so happening. okay. So so one thing we wanted to talk about. One of the reasons we're lobbing all these questions at you is is that we wanted to uh, have you on to talk about uh, Battleship's verisimilitude. You know, and it's uh, it, what it does and. Um, uh, what it doesn't do right with respect to the actual United States Navy. So uh, it, were you, um, as, as an actual uh, member of the United States Navy, were you offended by this film, or, or do you think they did okay? I would say they did okay, because the, the, the set design, the costumes, the jargon, that was all pretty much spot on. There are little things here and there that you'd really only notice if you, you, you'd really been around uh, the stuff, but... N- not nothing to get a, get upset about, but the all the action, the weapons, and the the nonsense with the buoys and the grid squares and all that—that's uh, all nonsense. I I go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the the you know the, well I'll, I'll start with that because that's kind of like the big thing to, to make it like Battleship. They had this thing with the buoys, and supposedly you can track ships by displacement of water and and all that nonsense. I mean, first of all, those buoys just don't exist. There there's like <laughs> one. There are tsunami buoys, but there's like one per port that measures the waves. You don't have this massive grid of them because if you have a massive grid of them, they're navigation hazards and ships run into them and get them tangled in their props. And it'd be especially if you're in Hawaii, it'll be like parasailing boats and like people were surfing. Yeah, yes. So they don't have some massive grid, and even if you did, it couldn't do what it does in the movie. So that part's all nonsense. Also, if you'd have had the grid. Um, they, they go through great pains to describe the communications difficulties they're having, except it's very easy, apparently, to you know, go to no, noaa.gov 
and <laughs> right. tap into the uh, the signals of the, of the sonar buoys. <laughs> a lot of that, a lot of that uh, uh, oceanic and atmospheric administration stuff is is available. Like it's you can get geeky weather maps online if you uh, if you care to. Yeah, actually, those buoys, they actually, each one of them the, has a phone number attached to it. You can just call on your phone and get a little auto-dial <laughs> message. Let's, let's dial get... the buoy into the podcast. You want <laughs> you very can, we that? can we dial a tsunami buoy into this podcast right now? Is that something that we can do? <laughs> I'll, I'll get right on that. All right, fair enough. <laughs> By the way, I'm pasting into the back channel a list of Starfleet ranks uh, enlisted in officer <laughs> ranks, and you can uh, I'll, I'll uh, add this to the show notes on the uh, uh, on overthinkingit.com. I, uh, sorry to interrupt, Ben. Oh, no worries. <laughs> Um, so okay, so, so I- no no tsunami buoys. Uh, you actually can't uh, you actually can't fire missiles uh, from ship to ship like that, right? Right. Well, th- there are missiles that you can fire from ship to ship, huh. but you need radar for them, and the missiles that they use uh, wouldn't work. The, the missiles that they use are tomahawk missiles, which aren't supposed to you, you don't use for that typically. So that that part was all pretty much nonsense. Um, the, the, the weapons they use aren't the right weapons for the situations. Ironically what would enough, be the right weapons? Let's ask you this. If you were in that ship and you had to fight the aliens, like what would you do? The, the gun is the best thing. That's the thing that you can fire manually. That's the thing that you can just plug in a azimuth and elevation and point and shoot. Everything else pretty much requires a coordinate or radar or some kind of external information. And so you're talking about the cannons that are on the ship, like by the gun, you mean the the big, like, 50 caliber cannons or what have you that are on the boat? Or you mean, like, the sniper rifles that they use to blind the aliens in that <laughs> climactic sunrise sequence? <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the gun, the, 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 specifically for the, the destroyer, they have, they have a five-inch gun, the big gun up front that they, they fire the warning shot with and all that. That's, that's the, 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 the main battery of that ship. Okay. And on modern vessels, those big guns are much smaller than what we see later on in the movie when they actually bring up the big battleship, right? Yes, yeah, that's uh, the, it's measured in the diameter of the uh, um, of the round, the round. So that those are five inch guns. The guns on the battleship, which it has a whole bunch of, are twelve inch rounds. So it's much much bigger. So so that brings me to uh, this is my segment myself. If you if you hold your hands twelve inches apart. And, and, you know, curve your fingers to make them roughly cylindrical. I mean, just do that right now in front of you. Like a 12-inch round is a huge uh, hunk of lead or explosive or whatever it is uh, coming at you, you know? Yes. And, and thank you for that, Matt. Um, <laughs> thank you for interrupting the segue that I was about to set up for myself. Oh, sorry. So, you know, <laughs> you've got this big freaking battleship now, which has the bigger guns, which is going to be very useful for fighting the aliens and whatnot. Um <laughs> So, Ben, we have to ask this. When we're talking about verisimilitude and the accuracy of the naval experience, could they have actually gotten the USS Missouri out of mothballs, you know, turned it into a museum, from a museum into a fighting vessel with the help of some crusty war vets and a small scrappy team, including R&B singer Rihanna? Um, could they have actually done that? R&B's, I guess she's an R&B singer, I suppose. Not, not an R&B singer. What would you, what would you, I mean, what would you, the... what would you call her? Not to go down a complete rat hole, but if <laughs> she not... sings like hip hop and dance pop, right? 
Uh, well, I guess or, dance. I guess dance pop, but sort of dance pop. I I guess needs to be qualified because there are there are kinds of dance pop, right? I suppose. Like I mean, gone. there's rhythm. Does rhythm and blues just mean that she's black? Is that all rhythm and blues means? Because like, does she have like a blues style? I don't mean to be offensive by it. I'm just like, actually, let's answer the question about the USS Missouri. <laughs> We'll back up and we'll go to the actual question. And we can go back and address Rihanna's musical career later. Um, <laughs> geez, that was a little darker than I'm being dark across the board today. That's no good. I should uh, cheer up a little bit. So, yeah, uh, Evgeny, I bought you some time to think about how to retrofit the USS Missouri for combat operations in a two hour window. So, <laughs> I actually really like that. Available. I actually really like that scene, but no, it, it'd be impossible. I, 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 I the, First of all, a ship like that, a steam ship, even the ones we have that are active duty ships that are there right now, they take, I haven't been on one, but they take hours and hours and hours to start. Like, just the engines take a long, long time to you get don't just, going. You don't just take a torch, a live flame, and <laughs> just kind of thrust it inexpertly into the engine, and suddenly the boat moves. <laughs> and then, of course, completely aside from that, I have no idea why I would have any fuel or any ammunition. <laughs> so, so that's your big problem not the people but there's no fuel there's no bullets so it's not going anywhere what if they I have hope gutted like it as well for, what if they have gutted it for important parts I mean, i'm just thinking about the recent decommissioning of the space shuttles um which is not a, an apples to apples comparison obviously you know a space shuttle, shuttle versus a world war ii battleship but uh in, in a similar vein you know a uh formerly uh active piece of government property used for very uh, specialized purposes is now being and and you know put away only accessible by professionals and now being put into view for the public and they take a lot of important stuff out of it would that not have been the case with the uh with the missouri i am sure they did i i I couldn't say for sure what they have and haven't but i am sure there are key parts you know single points of failure that are gone or corroded or rusted or whatever i'm sure that that they've taken the expensive stuff out already (laughs) And yet, and yet, someone decided to leave the ACDC CD on there with, uh, <laughs> with, with the one that was thunderstruck on it. How convenient! <laughs> well, it's uh, yeah, it's great. It's it's great that they retrofitted the uh, the Missouri with a CD player. You know, <laughs> <laughs> unless it was a vinyl, you know, an LP, the ACDC LP. That was- oh, if it had a Victrola, how awesome would that would have been? If it had like a, the bridge had a Victrola, like a big old <laughs> horn thing coming out, that would have been awesome. And they played yeah, Benny was- Goodman's version of Thunderstruck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how would they normally have? So, I guess they they. So the scene where they carry the single round, right, which weighs a thousand pounds. <laughs> this is a great metaphor for the rest of the movie, by the way. I thought it was a great way of raising the stakes of of the board game Battleship, where, like, how do you make firing one shot at one place, like, as dramatic as possible? You make it, like, comically heavy and difficult to move and difficult <laughs> I'm pulling this trigger as hard as I possibly can. Um, like the trigger is over a pit of snakes. Um, so, so the idea was what? They had ammunition only in one part of the ship, and they only had one round left, and they only had a gun that was working in another part of the ship, and they have no way within the ship of moving materials in one part of a ship to the other part of the ship, right? Like there's no forklifts or pallets or anything. I guess there aren't because it's a museum, right? Like. And even even if you're going down the passageway, you can't like roll it. You know, you can't put it on a hand truck because you have to step over uh, the um, I forget what they're called the sort of shin busting things. Knee knockers. The knee knockers in all the the hatches. 
Right, 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 right. So that seemed fairly realistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, re- yeah, I mean, in your time in the Navy, Ben, you humped a lot of, uh, of ordnance around the P-Ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's generally frowned upon to do it by hand. But I guess if you had to, I mean, that part is, I, I suppose it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I should, I should clarify that, you know, we're nitpicking the crap out of, you know, the retrofitting of the USS Missouri. Um, but I actually, like, like Ben, I really enjoyed this part of the movie and thought that uh, this is the, uh, especially with the World War II veterans coming in, was the part of the movie that was the most enjoyable and had the most heart. Um, I, I will take, I, I, I was about to say I was going to take some quibble with how they use the anchor to do a crazy, like, fishtail power slide of the battleship. <laughs> I would complain about that were not so artfully executed and just the, the fantastically fun. <laughs> too fast, too battleship, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. It was a power slide, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, like Tokyo Vin Diesel it's pulls a, a handbrake and does a, does a you know, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> Have you okay. ever worked anybody from the – so how's the depiction of the, the JMSDF in the movie? Is that fairly accurate in terms of the relations between, like, the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force and the United States Navy? Like, do you guys hang out and, like, bro down and play soccer? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, that, that part, uh, the, the, when, when there are exercises like that, there, there are games like that. It's not always soccer, but the, usually if a foreign ship pulls into port – you'll get something together just to kind of build relations. So that part, I don't think they normally have announcers. Uh, I've never been at one where they have, <laughs> I mean, think like intramural soccer. That, that's, that's what we're talking about. Especially, especially announcers trying to establish the, like the thematic content of the movie. <laughs> oh, Tim Riggins from Friday night lights is too arrogant to take himself out of the game when he's clearly incapacitated. And he's cost the Americans everything. And also at these, at these, uh, at these meetings and these exercises, Exercises. Is it really true that there are no countries with navies that are present that are better than the United States or Japan at soccer? Because neither of those teams are very good at soccer, and I find it very unlikely that the Japanese and Americans would beat all the other countries in the naval soccer tournament. But maybe that's just my own uh, prejudices at work. Right. Brazil has a navy, surely, right? England has one, right? I mean, I guess. Maybe. Maybe not anymore. I don't know. Do they break it down and turn them into, like the ferris wheel that they have <laughs> they, they do that it actually actually i was actually going to comment on that there's a completely random bit at the end that i caught where one of the f-18s that's flying over is from australia which oh. seems to be completely token like oh there's another country involved too uh-huh. <laughs> even, even though they don't have those planes and if they did they wouldn't be on air, one of our aircraft carriers so but there it was so you know it's <laughs> I have to assume that South Korea wasn't part of this uh, RIMPAC naval operations because then we would have had a riveting StarCraft tournament between South <laughs> Korea and the rest of the countries. <laughs> Sorry. That was a low-hanging fruit there. I had to have to, well, that. Have to apologize. StarCraft is great. I mean, you know, I South think Koreans are awesome at it. <laughs> Can you play online video games when you're stationed on a ship at sea? Not on the, the ship's computers. At least you're not supposed to. But okay. uh, you can people bring their laptops and they'll you know set up a uh, you know bring a little mobile LAN and they'll do that. So sometimes you see people do that. But oh, what so if you'll have you'll have you'll have intraship uh, computer? Uh, you can have intraship computer games. But the you know the um, 
uh, I, someone was explaining to me at, at some point, and I, I was on a tour of a, of a Navy ship, and I, someone explained to me that uh, you, you, there actually could be inter- internet when a ship was underway, but... Um, you know, uh, you couldn't like use YouTube or something. You had to limit it to you know Facebook or something. Like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. The, the the ships they all have internet now because I mean obviously we use it for all sorts of real uh, you know operational purposes. But uh, they do limit the bandwidth. You you generally can't do streaming video or other high bandwidth sites just because it's you know, it's a small pipe and there's a lot of people using it. Sure. Um, all right, so uh, so Captain Nagata was there to uh, provide Mr. Miyagi like um, <laughs> uh, right uh, guidance to uh, sort of stand, standing in, even though there was a joke uh, made about how uh, all Asians are not in fact from the same nationality, and there are sort of multiple ethnicities and sort of multiple cultural traditions. Uh, within within Asia, um, still I think that that's sort of belied um, uh, by by the uh, by the action of the movie. Mark, what did you think of the uh, wh- what did you think of the of token Asian man in um, in the uh, 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 the action of Battleship? Uh, I, I was not particularly put off by. Oh, by the way, uh, listeners new to the podcast, I am in fact an Asian American podcaster. Um, that's 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 my role that I play here. Um, I was not particularly put off by the uh, presence of the Japanese character uh, in in the in the film. Um, it's interesting. What I thought more interesting was portraying the rest of the Americans as unsophisticated, uh, it's like bordering on racist. Um, you know, with um, with Taylor Kitsch's character, uh, you know, <laughs> blathering about Sun Tzu to the Japanese guy, I mean, really, he should know better, to the, um, the Rihanna's sort of sidekick white guy um, who was saying konnichiwa, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, ribbing at the uh, presence of the foreigners um, in, in, the, in the rest of the exercises. Um, that was not being done, in, that was being done sort of at the expense of those characters, saying that they... Uh, we're not sophisticated enough to appreciate sort of you know the, the multicultural, multinational um, uh, environment they're in. And and this is uh, to me this is ironic because of the uh, of the the people who have been in the navy that that I have met uh, the ones who've been deployed uh, they've been all over the world you know mm-hmm. and and are actually like quite sophisticated about you know different places in the world and and uh have seen them all uh all firsthand i, I mean i shouldn't talk uh, what do i know ben you you're probably more the expert on this well i mean yeah i mean if you've been in the navy for a while you've you've been around i mean at, at that point in riggins's career he'd have probably done at least two or three deployments overseas and you do port visits so yeah, I mean, you'd have been all around, so that that's pretty accurate. Of course, the Landry's character—I can't remember the the actual character's name—but Landry, the, the Landry the, the, from Friday Night the guy Lights. saying Konichiwa, he wouldn't have been. He he he'd only have been in for like a year or two. Which, of course, you're wondering why he's the one that's making all the decisions and yelling at the captain at, later on in the movie. But it's because he's it's because he's Landry. It's because his Christian rock band Crucifictorious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, watch Friday Night Lights if you haven't. Um, you know, has uh, given him uh, superpowers of character, of heart, <laughs> of Americanness. 
I mean, I, I suppose it would be possible to, to put together a, um, a grand unified theory of Landry the way John Parrish did with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where uh, Landry from Friday Night Lights uh, decided to join the Navy, right? And, uh, you know, get out and see the world um, and ended up being, being his character in Battleship. I think it's a much better movie if you assume that Landry and Riggins are, in fact, Landry and Riggins from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> uh, did he have? Did he have a pet lizard in Friday Night Lights? Because that was crucial to the to, to fighting the aliens. Yeah, not that we know about. Not that we know about. But um, all right. So, yeah, I, can we talk a little bit about narrative about narrative structure and and this film? Right. I, I think this. Yes. This, yes, we can. <laughs> we can talk a lot about. Can it. I can I do a quick interruption first? Quick interruption. This is a live update. The reading at the Hawaii Water Column Station five one four zero seven is at four thousand seven hundred thirty eight point two meters, which is in line with about high tide. Pretty much always. So, so there's no alien tsunami activity currently in Hawaii. This is a live report from the National Data Buoy Center at ndbc.noaa.gov. And, and we'll, so, give you, we'll give you the instructions in the show notes on this podcast to dial a buoy. Uh, but the, the number, by the way, is 888-701-8992 uh, if you want to dial a... a um, a buoy, and uh, you can get the latest observations near Atlantic Tropical Storm Alberto uh, as of uh, advisory number five, uh, five o'clock p.m. Yeah, that's seventeen hundred hours Eastern Daylight Time on Sunday, May twentieth, and and we will bring you more breaking news from uh, the National Data Buoy Center's Dial a Buoy <laughs> as the podcast continues. So. In, in, like, in the grossest terms in films like this, a lot of the times there's a sort of character flaw that you know, the main character has, and the overcoming of that character flaw is concomitant with defeating the, uh, defeating the sort of big bad guy, right? Um, not only did this movie not have a single super satisfying explosion, like a single moment of, of triumph at the end, but... Um, you would think that given the beginning and given especially the extremely heavy-handed uh, moralizing announcer of the inter-service uh, or inter-Navy soccer game, right, um, the, uh, you'd think that the end would involve Taylor Kitsch taking himself out and letting a more capable person, right, make a decision or, you know, perform some sort of important action at the climactic moment, uh, of the movie. Um, now this would be a terrible action movie because you don't want to see the hero bench himself, uh, you know, right at the most important moment, but it would be in line with, uh, with what I think we were, um, being set up to expect, uh, at the beginning. And, and that, that didn't happen, right? The, the idea of the idea of sort of personal, uh, overcoming, uh, coinciding with overcoming the enemy um, didn't really happen uh, in this film in, in quite the way we were expecting. Pete, am I, am I getting something wrong about the way I'm, I'm reading it? Well, the one thing that you're missing is that the scene you're describing does happen, but it doesn't happen in the climax of the film. It happens okay. in, the, in the major battleship scene where uh, Commander Friday Night Lights uh, does hand control the ship and the firing, you know, the firing order over to the Japanese guy like that. Oh, that so my, cha- my chair is your chair. And that's the uh, and that's the moment when that 
that uh, sort of arc is fulfilled. I think that's what that's and, supposed to and be. And it passes but. quickly and not particularly dramatically, and it's easy to miss. Yeah. Right. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's actually even a bit where he, he says something that, if they actually highlighted it, would have been sort of dramatic, where he says something like, that's what my brother would have wanted, or something like that. But it's completely lost in the din of everything else that's going on. Right. Can, uh, can we talk about the din, actually, for 30 seconds here? The, the film, and Ben and I saw this film together uh, in the theater in Los Angeles. I don't know what your impression was, Ben, but I thought it was so damn loud. Yes. I mean, I, I saw Avengers, you know, two weeks ago, which is a loud movie, and this was much louder. Right. This was like, uh, this was like the time I saw The Expendables 1. Oh, and by the way, uh, the, the trailer, uh, you know, that uh, at the beginning of uh, Battleship for Expendables 2, uh, we'll definitely be overthinking that film when it, uh, you know, when it comes out. I mean, out. We, we, were, we were loving the trailer for G.I. Joe Retaliation. <laughs> uh, that was... That was pretty solid too. We were all excited for that. But uh, Pete, did you did you have an interesting screening experience with this film? Yeah, but I think the thing that was interesting about our screening experience is that we had three solid rows of people who made up well over half the audience who were all seeing this as a joke and were like all <laughs> making comments about it, including us. Um, and so, and then there were like maybe five or six people who were kind of seated down into the right who seemed like a little bit. One of them talked to me while I was coming into the theater because I was carrying a Battleship game board, right? (laughs) We had a Battleship game board because we were going to play Battleship at the OTI movie night afterwards, which we did, and it was a lot of fun. The guy was like, uh, hey, what what is that? And it's like, oh, this, this is the board game that's based on the movie. Uh, what I said, and he's like, <laughs> "It's like no, it's not like that." I'm like, "Wait, what? You mean like it's not a faithful adaptation?" He's like, "No." I was like, "Oh no, that's the whole reason I came to come see this." <laughs> oh, I'm so upset! And so, and the guy just like stares at me really blankly, like he was like an older guy. He's trying to make conversation. You could tell he was not really getting it. Maybe he was on the spectrum a little bit or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, but I went to go sit down, and where all people are laughing, there's like a row of kids. There's a row of like that's like uh, of uh, honestly, I hate to say it, but um fairly large African-American women uh, who were talking for a lot of the beginning of the movie. And then there was a row of us who were like, you know, sniveling, hipsterish, late 20s and early 30s douchebags, right? And like the three rows of us are all talking. And every once in a while, uh, the usher from the theater would come up the stairs and like stand near us and we would all stop. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I know, this was a movie that uses the patented Shia LaBeouf moving a filing cabinet down a flight of stairs soundtrack, right? Which is like, get out of here! We need to get this up! I I think of that as the Eddie Murphy uh, doing the impression of, like, his his, uh, overweight aunt falling down a flight of stairs uh, (laughs) soundtrack. Do do you remember that? I I can't do it without it being offensive, but I'll do it anyway and just make it offensive. Um, Where you go... Oh Lord, help me! Help me, Jesus! Oh, oh, one third of the way down the stairs now. I'm going down. It's a it's a classic routine, and and you should check it out because it's hilarious when he does it, as opposed to being slightly uncomfortable as when I do it. I mean, we didn't see it in a, a sort of huge. You know, there's like a different class of movie theater. Right, which most big cities have the big one in the middle and maybe like another big one uh, where the seats are posh and everything has cup holders and you have the captain's chair and the sound is awesome and like everything's really shiny and spectacular. We didn't see it in one of those theaters. We were in the theater where like you went to look for the cup holder and it wasn't there and it was nice, but it was like theater two was up the stairs next to the bathroom. Uh, so we didn't get like the full on, I mean, I'm sure we had surround sound or whatever. I'm sure it was fine, but like I was not overwhelmed by the, uh, the sheer volume of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I wonder whether the, the theater I saw it in was a factor um, in much the same way that seeing a movie with a 3D camera can be can darken it. Right, like seeing a movie with doesn't have like super awesome THX whatchamacallits can make it tolerable if it's too loud. <laughs> so hmm. I actually expected it to be really loud. I expected it. People had described it to me as a, as a movie where people are constantly uh, banging together pots and pans for the entirety of the film. <laughs> uh, I think Cognac said that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not, I, I, I wasn't too overwhelmed. I was mostly focused on when we were going to make jokes about it and when we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you, you had an eye on the, the, uh, the usher. Oh, I mean, definitely. Really, what is the usher going to do to you? You know what I mean? You're, you're, not, you're probably not going to kick that, get kicked out of the theater, right? Even as a you know, late 20s, early 30s douchebag uh, making, movies about the, make, uh, making jokes about the movie. But that's not how authority works. Authority, authority is not based off of like punishment and sanction, right? Like it's based off of like jawline, uh, uh, as Taylor, <laughs> <laughs> like Taylor Kitsch. Well, yeah, it's a it's a whole thing where you like you know the legitimacy of the authority of an institution or an individual comes from like the relationship between the people who are subject to that institution or individual, and like looking around the theater, we were all like, I don't want to be the one who gets in trouble, yeah. right? So it's like social force, force of conformity, I suppose. Perhaps I should have like followed my inner Ubermensch and been like, Hey, look at that crazy scene! Like, hey, Rihanna, like, ah, uh, you're in this movie. This is hilarious, and just like not cared because like the law was not meant to govern people like me. Yeah. Like, but uh, unfortunately, no. I'm more I'm more a lamb than a bird of prey when you get right down to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Mark, so uh, the 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 contention has been advanced that this film, uh, in this film, the aliens are in fact uh, the good guys, and I know you've you've done some some thinking about this. So, so what do you think? Are the aliens uh, the good guys? Well, uh, well, Matt, you know we'd love a good alternate reading here at OverthinkingIt.com. I, I've um, heard. Yes, uh, just uh, by the way, uh, if you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, look up uh, Star Trek II Eels um, on Overthinking It, and you'll find an amazing re- uh, retelling by Parrish of how um, the eels are, are mind-controlling everybody in Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Uh, but I digress. Okay, so let's just start with the movie uh, sort of on its surface level, right? <laughs> Pun intended. We're actually, um, I, just, they- I just Googled that. We're actually in the first page of Google results if you Google Star Trek II Eels. Um, eels! That's, that's search engine optimization, people. Yes. Okay. So in the movie, uh, you know, the, the Navy people are the good guys, the aliens are the bad guys. They've come here to invade and they're going to kill us all, right? Um, the, and then when you look at the scenes, um, which I call the glaring plot holes or just inexplicable actions by the aliens, uh, there are several parts where they pass up excellent opportunities to just kill their enemies, right? The people that are trying to kill them or humans. Um, most notably uh, in the engine room where the alien sort of ignores the, uh, the, the Navy guy and proceeds to try to disable the, the ship or um, at, I think at the end of the first battle when the, uh, when the John Paul Jones turns his guns away and the, and the alien decides to stop shooting at it. Um, and, and then several other instances as well. And also no, notably when the nerd guy goes back into the trailer to get his suitcase, um, the alien just lets him go. Right. So many different times where if they um, had just sort of followed what we would consider to be typical rules of uh, engaging threats and uh, taking out opponents at opportune times, then the outcome of the movie would have been very different. Are we all with me so far? Can I get an aye aye, Captain? <laughs> aye aye, Captain. Aye, aye. <laughs> okay. So um, 
uh, so that was basically my thought coming out of the movie, and sort of the only thing that I would really knock the movie for, um, aside and, and putting that aside, and then my overall feelings of the movie were actually pretty positive. But um, I found on the IMDb message board a pretty convincing, I gotta say, alternate reading of, a- of, of Battleship, which paints the aliens as the good guys. Basically, they just come here to check us out and to establish a communications link uh, to back to their home planet. And that basically they only attack when they are threatened and they have uh, some level uh, of uh, they're reading they're reading threats. They're trying to figure out who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. You see the crazy spinning ball of metal. It sees there's a kid here, not a threat, moves on. Um, The guy uh, in the engine room, again, fits into this theory that, well, they're not really out to just totally destroy everybody. They're just trying to do self-defense or they're just more strategic about what it is they're trying to do. And it falls well short of an intergalactic invasion. And I thought thought that was the most convincing element of this theory was one of the very beginning lines um, where the aforementioned nerd scientist guy says that um, when the aliens come, it's going to be like Columbus and the Indians, except we're going to be the Indians and that they are, that humanity is predisposed to read these visitors as threats. Right. So, um, before I hand this off to the panel, (laughs) I will just end with this, that if this is true, then what battleship has done is basically, um, dramatically turn the tail, turn the tables on the audience and, uh, uh, basically put out a scathing critique of these alien invasion movies along the same lines and well beyond that of Starship Troopers, which if that's what they were trying to do, I would be astounded and would really to tip my hat to the filmmakers. I somehow don't think that's what actually happened, but I am totally intrigued by it and want to hear what you have to say. I mean, my first reaction, right, is, um, is that it doesn't really matter to an extent how cruel the aliens are. Like that's that's a trick that it's interesting because it's a trick of of the interpretation and it's a trick of the genre right like the whole well we're going to make the bad guy look like the bad guy by having him shoot a child right and this was, um, this was not a film that was afraid to show you a lot of children in all the establishing shots all over the world yeah yeah then, exactly just, yeah, but then there's right. the one shot where the alien specifically avoids right the ch- the child. Right, 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 right. And so, like, if there's a situation where there's a conflict in a movie, they love to make it simple for you to figure out who you're going to root for by having the bad guy do, like, arbitrary and wasteful mean things, right? Or, like, things that are just, oh, that person is so, so bad, right? Um, And this movie didn't do that. And uh, I don't think they did it in order to be unsentimental or to, like, make a gray area, right? Like, they clearly didn't. They clearly think that you should be unabashedly rooting for the good guys. Maybe there was an earlier draft of the movie where you weren't supposed to unabashedly root for the good guys, possibly. But uh, in this one, it seems to be that they are supposed to be rooting for the good guys. And I think that it's important to remember that the outcome of the aliens successfully contacting their planet it never seems to be disputed, right? Like, it never seems to be disputed that they're going to, like, come and, and, and they're going to destroy the planet or they're going to kill all the people and they're going to, like, take it for their own, right? Like, I mean, I guess that's a guess, right? That's a presumption. that, that You can't assume that's what's going to happen. I mean, it seems reasonable, right? Like, and whether or not he kills a baby shouldn't affect whether you make that judgment of whether that's going to happen or not. I think the little vision that goes into to Riggins' mind when the the alien pops up and grabs him in the face. I think that vision's supposed to say, yes, they're going to invade us and destroy right. the planet. And I mean, that's what all. they do in, in Independence Day. That's exactly what they do in Independence Day, is that the alien and the president and, you know, 
President Commander in Chief Bill Pullman like meld minds, right? And like they tele- telepathically engage no, with one it's another. The, it's the alien sticks its tentacle into uh, Star Trek's data, Brent Spiner, right? Yeah, yeah. Bangs yeah. him up against the glass and uses him as an as sort of agent of of talkie talkie with President Bill Pullman. No, no, but Bill Pullman also telepathically links with. The oh, alien. okay, sorry. Yes, and he's like they're like locusts, you know. They they consume the resources and they move on. You know that's when he resolves to use nuclear weapons against them right. because he's he's seen inside of their brains, and it's sort of like it's it's not just an act of of like oh I know their terrible plan. It's also like an act of violation, right? Like the alien has kind of like kind of mind raped uh, Bill Pullman, and he kind of is disturbed by this whole thing. So, and of let course, let me comment murdered. on that because this uh, this IMDb forum post addresses this. Um, I'll just read straight from here. The alien in a brief flash tries to communicate telepathically with Hopper. What do we see here? Sure, explosions and war. But clearly the alien is showing how the world he comes from has been devastated by war and how they try to escape it. Ooh. Now, I don't remember the specifics of that, of that tele- telepathy scene. I do remember it being about war and destruction, but uh, not specifically that, uh, you know, that the water aliens were coming to kill humans. Yeah, I wonder if the movie would have been better if there was a long scene that happened right there where they explained it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a tough question. That is a tough question. Whether the, whether the movie would be better if they at what it's trying to accomplish. Um, Perhaps, but let's put that aside for a moment and let's just address the 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 initial complaint that I had here, which is that the aliens' friend and foe and strategic targeting decisions are very poor in this. Right. Yes, that's true. They don't even know what a is horse is. There that's any justification it. for when you think back for you know, the alien letting the nerd scientists go for the alien letting the the John Paul Jones go? It, these things just happen, and they let our heroes live to fight another day. And it's possible. And the fl- have, go ahead. So I was to say the flip side of that is they seem to instinctively know where everything is. Like they just landed here. They haven't been like watching us. You know, we see them come into the solar system. But they know where the they know that there's a marine base on Oahu. They know that you know there's a highway there that's key to this satellite dish. That's the only thing they can communicate with their home planet. Like, how do they know all of this? So on one hand, they don't target the right things, but on the other hand, they target things that they have no business knowing even exist in the first place. Yeah, like they don't know what a soldier is, but they know what the pylons are that hold up the interstate, which is like a, definitely a strange situation definitely a strange situation i don't know if there is an explanation for it that's adequate especially because they've clearly never engaged in in naval combat before right because they like shoot from like a thousand yards away right like and they and they wait and they're like oh this battleship is like we could pretty much throw something at it at this point like let's figure out whether we want to fire our weapons or not right like um because normally a fight like that would have happened at what like a range of like 15 or 20 miles something like that or maybe maybe a bit less, but I mean, the Missouri can fire those cannons, or could before it was a uh, destination for tourists, like quite a ways, right? Like, and they do it like very very close up. But anyway, I think it's a good question, and I think it's a flaw of the movie. Uh, I don't think that there's a good resolution for it, other than we can say like, uh, what what do we gain? That's the, what do we gain from saying yes? The aliens were the good guys in Battleship, and the bad guys hurt them. I feel like it's the same thing you get when you rightfully rec- you rightfully conclude that Bill Zane is in fact the good guy in Titanic. 
right? Like, which is like, he's just trying to provide Rose with a good life <laughs> and a good family, and she cheats on him and demonizes him. He even gives up his seat on the lifeboat to try to go get her or whatever, you know, like, he's doing everything right. Yes, he's within a social structure that's somewhat restrictive, and it's not the way that everybody would have loved it to be, but you know what? That doesn't mean it's okay to go bang some homeless man in, like, the car park, right? Like, <laughs> and then, you know, so they're like, the real heroes of Titanic are Billy Zane and Rose's second husband, or whatever, her actual husband, who was never shown in the movie, except in, like, a picture or two, right? Um, and yet, that explanation is somewhat unsatisfying, <laughs> right? Like, uh, and yet, and I don't think it's because you can say, well, in this scene, Billy Zane didn't do this, and in this scene, the aliens did this, and I don't know. It's hard. I might, emotionally, I'm rebelling against this theory, even though I know that it seems reasonable, and it seems like, you know, something that just the movie is content with being wrong. So, Pete, you're asking what do we gain from this if this interpretation is correct? And this is what I alluded to earlier, but I'll just resurface it again, yeah. which is that um, <clears throat> that somebody has pulled off this incredibly subversive uh, act, right, by hiding uh, this uh, sort of, I guess, what, anti, uh, anti-colonialism anti or just a, or anti-war message into a movie that is otherwise glorifying the use of military power. I'm not, I'm not sure so, how, how uh, much... I, I mean, did you hear Fortunate Son being played over the credits of... of oh, the, yeah, that, that's a really good point there, right? Like, what is that song doing? Well, right, that, that, like <laughs> Born in the USA, that's a song where people don't listen past the, the most famous two lines, you know, and, uh, and don't actually hear the, the message of the song, right? So, so wait, so is the movie saying, so we're saying that, let's assume that it's, it's the movie, to the extent that intention is meaningful, that the movie is saying that the aliens are the good guys, and that uh, they're just trying to make contact, and that we've have overreacted in blowing them off the planet. Um, there's two ways to look at that, even with that information, either in this sort of post-colonial way, right, where we need to like relook at who the other is and we need to relook at our ideas of ourselves, or in a more hawkish way where it's like, isn't it awesome that we just kick these guys' asses and we don't even care? Right? It's, it's sort of like it's like, could it be like, yes, they were sort of benevolent, but you know what? They were aliens and we killed them because they were aliens. You know, like it, it, is it glorifying that? Um, do you think that it inspires sympathy in the audience, even if it does uh, elucidate a theory in which the aliens might be what we would term to have them, might term to be good, right, if we did not otherize them? Does that well, make sense? It's funny that you mentioned sympathy for the aliens because uh, it's similar to what we see at the end of I Am Legend, or spoilers for I Am Legend. Uh, they come back and they try to, you know, uh, they try to rescue one of their one of their comrades, right? Um, I, mean, I am Legend's a great one to bring up because in the book, it's it's exactly what we're talking about. In the book, I am Legend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a big spoiler for I am Legend. You know why it's called I am Legend? Uh, tell us, Pete. Why is it called I Am Legend? It's called I Am Legend because the guy. Because okay, so you have the guy who lives in the house, and he goes out during the day. It's vampires in the book, not zombies, because it was before zombies were a thing. So he goes out during the day, and he finds the dens of the vampires, and he kills them while they're asleep. And then he goes back to his house at night, and he barricades himself in, and the vampires all assault his house every night, and he shoots them all. And it turns out that that I Am Legend it means that the guy is this in the culture of the vampires who are really just regular people who've developed this photosensitive disease he is this horrible mass murdering monster right right. right? like that there's been a plague across the entire earth and people have become very photosensitive some of them have been driven crazy by the disease these are the ones that the guy encounters and makes the conclusion that everybody who looks like this is a monster 
right? And so he starts killing all of them when most of them are just regular people who can't go outside during the day. Uh, and so I Am Legend is like, I, you know, it's like I Am Death, Destroyer of Worlds, is really where it's coming from, right? And of course, this, this angle is, is to- and he has to come to terms with this, it's explained to him. Oh, oh Pete, yeah. you're reminding me of, 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 uh, that I was confused by the uh, original filmed uh, ending for the most recent film adaptation of I Am Legend, which has the, uh, the, the zombie vampires coming to rescue their own person, and that's sort of how the movie ends. Uh, that was not released. Uh, what we did see in the theaters was uh, you know, Will Smith grenading them all. Yeah. <laughs> all the monsters. Yeah, it, it, they took all of the resonance and subtlety and like the plot twist just out of it. They were just yeah. like, you know what? It just works better if he just kills everybody. If everybody just dies, it's just, it's like it's like you're doing an improv scene. You're just like, let's just edit. Let's just let's just finish this movie. Let's just kill everybody in this movie and just like get on with our lives because we do not want to make another scene in this movie. Um, so yeah, so I mean, in that case, like there's subversion. Like there's the subversion of the original narrative for the case that they're making of the sort of hero narrative. I mean, I, from what I said earlier, I think the second interpretation is a stretch. But I mean, I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to advance this as what I actually think is happening, and I just think the possibility of it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it does add a layer of complexity to it, um, and it also sort of like adds a layer of complexity to the sense of glee that people get like fighting the aliens too, right? Like as they're as they're in it, it's like the especially the old salts, the old salts, right, are so happy to be fighting this foe that they've never met and don't understand, um, right? Like, <laughs> like it's like I understand for like I mean. Let's be one of the biggest. I mean, the biggest, biggest character hole in this movie. Like the biggest character hole in this movie. And you got to make a list of these movies. Maybe you guys can mention some of them. Is at the end of the movie when he gets the agreement from Liam Neeson to marry Brooklyn Decker, and he's like totally pumped, and he's like, "Oh, we saved the world. I'm awesome." His brother died like 12 hours ago, right? Like his brother was. His brother just died. Well, it's like not. His, it's not. It's not totally clear how much time elapses between the saving of the world. And the uh, and the awarding of the medals, right? I suppose. I su- may, I guess they maybe didn't do it the it same. It could day. be like it could be like eight months later, and he's been through like a really intense grief counseling. Uh, <laughs> he does program. everything fast. He gets his his naval commendations and his naval promotions really fast, and he just he lets the healing begin, man. He just gets right on that. He's like, I'm so happy. I, I was thinking when we saw it that it was the character of the brother is such a hugely reducted stereotype that it's like he won the Navy Cross. He, this is how he would have wanted it, right? Like, he's happy with this conclusion. Like, it, we must all be okay that he's dead because, like, clearly the Navy is all that mattered to him, right? right. Um, the Navy and me also, getting me out of trouble. Yeah, and now, exactly. And now I have Brooklyn <laughs> Decker to, to keep me out of trouble. But, the, I mean, so, right, supposing, and I guess, Ben, this is a question about the, the, the uh, real Navy. Like, supposing, um, you know, uh, I'm the weapons officer on a, on a destroyer and I get a field promotion to commanding officer because, you know, the aliens kill everybody. Um, well, you know, once I mourn the loss of my brother and I get my mail, I'm going back to my old job, right? It's not, it's not that I'm going to be now the, you know, 24-year-old CEO of, uh, of a new ship because Liam Neeson is going to give me one. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just resuming my place on the, the career ladder. Isn't it, wouldn't that be the case? Right. Yeah. The to be to be a captain, there's a whole process. I mean, you know, everything in the Navy is bureaucracy. So, you know, there's a whole process and he's a good 10, 15 years from that point in his career where he'd be commanding a ship. Now, obviously, he'd have a pretty good chance of getting one someday. But no, they they wouldn't. They'd give it. He'd go back to his old job. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm just uh, I'm just gonna you know have this um, really uh, really great uh, you know award on my dress uniform, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think they give him a command at the end of the. Oh, of Liam the... Neeson. Liam Neeson says, "Baby, I I can't wait to see you commanding your own ship." Uh, you know. Oh, I thought that meant in the future. That's something that's yeah, going to happen in the near term. I interpreted that more like you're not being kicked out anymore. You get to stay in, and I'm I can't wait until you're you're going to get your own command or something. Oh, like I, that. I, I, I interpreted more wait, like that. I can't wait 15 years until you know you climb the ladder to the point where you've cleared all the bureaucratic hurdles to uh, getting your own ship. Right. That that that's how I read it at least. Yeah. So if the Navy doesn't really tolerate discipline problems, like how do they solve? issues that they have which require like a rogue who doesn't follow the rules like because there's a lot of problems that are like that right where like <laughs> like a good cop and a bad cop right like these have to happen in the navy they happen need, everywhere well you need just to disregard entirely command and control structures yeah. uh you know standard it's operating procedures yeah like it does that never happen in the navy where they're like you're off the case you're on you're you're you, you don't get any pay for the next two months you're don't gonna be riding a desk until i you know yeah don't secretly monitor the movements of the French fleet. Like you're 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 off the case. And he's like, I'm going to do it from my basement. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't happen in the navy. That's well, not something. That's that's actually kind of like been in the, at least the navy news that there there was. I'm, I'm and I'm I'm googling it and I can't find it, but there was a um, a well known military personnel who came out and said that there needs to be a way for I think he used the phrase disruptive leadership. You know, we need to get our junior officers involved and. You know, we need to make people not afraid for their careers to challenge the collective wisdom. But it's it's always a problem in the military. You know, you've got the, the people with the new ideas have to get promoted by the people that still believe in the old ideas. And so it, it's always a problem. So there, um, so that's always kind of a tension to get the, the new ideas in, in for the old ideas. Yeah. Or the old ideas have to start losing in the battlefield. Right. Vietnam, and then the new ideas can take or, place. Or, or, you know, the new ideas just need to rely on the old ideas to come and, you know, get the uh, USS Missouri out of mothballs, <laughs> right? Right, and of course there are old ideas that are, are still good, and, you know, you, we, we come up with new ideas that are, are terrible, and there, there are those two. Sure. Well, I mean, the old ideas that are still good are, you know, 4,000-year-old ideas, right? Like, the the... Uh, you know what I mean? They're not necessarily the 30-year-old ideas. That, that, no, th- that are- there are good ideas that are, like, less than a century old. Stuff like standard operating procedures for how you, like, handle equipment, right? Like, um, like, like that stuff like that. I mean, I remember when you read about management, you read about all the stuff that came out of the, the U.S. military during the last couple of big world wars and stuff. And a lot of it is, is just, sure, like, management. Like, it's just management of people and resources. Project, project planning or sort of yeah. goal uh, objective setting and things yeah. like this. I mean, are, you know. as much as I want to hope that this guy is saying that we need, like, Dolph Lundgren and Brian Benban to go find the alien drug dealers and I come in peace, when he's talking about, like, not following the rules, he's probably talking about, like, innovation and, like, management style, right? right? <laughs> he's, like, he's not talking about, like, you know, we need to figure out how to make some sort of pontoon boat that can also fly, <laughs> right? That, like, and if we need some sort of rebel to pilot it so that he can take it into the core of the earth to dismount, dis- disarm the Kim, Kim Il-jungs or whatever 
Moore's like Kim <laughs> Kim Il Sung's like you know birthday bomb. Uh, like that, that's not what we're talking. about. We're talking about like well, in the Navy, you see, you have to file this form in order to requisition this kind of equipment for this kind of job. Uh, but this is siloed, and there's a lot of people who need this, so we could do like just in time inventory management without having these stockpiles. But there's entrenchment in the people who are running this program, and I have this guy who is an officer, but he also has an MBA, and he would love to like fix the way that we deal with like these particular pieces of equipment, let's say their shoes, right? And it's like, you know, even the stuff like getting a mobile hotspot on the ship is a pain in the butt, it, but it's not something that's like foreign to something like Greyhound, right? Like it's like, it's the same kind of problems <laughs> and that any, I mean, the military, I don't know, you know better than I do, Ben, but aren't I primarily think of them as, as logistical organizations that move people and goods from place to place, right? And like there's a, the actual fighting is a relatively small uh, comportment of what you do on a day to day, unless you're, and maybe you are, maybe that's your, your job is definitely the no, actual fighting. I, I, but, absolutely. Uh, I mean, even the if, even if you're in Afghanistan, the, the vast majority of your time is spent doing logistical and admin and patrols. And, you know, the, I think the old phrase is, you know, combat is 99% sheer uh, mind numbing boredom and 1% sheer terror or something like that. Um, when you, uh, when you're even when you're deployed in a in a war zone like right and of course that's the the people deployed in a war zone are themselves a very small percentage of the the, the total force there's you know for everyone there there's ten back home working logistics and pay and all that everything that has to exist mm-hmm. the, uh, the there's actually in Generation Kill which is a great um, series by. Uh, uh, by HBO based on a, a book that a journalist who is embedded with some recon marines wrote about the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, the, there, there's a joke among the, the marines who are freezing and starving um, yeah, where their, uh, their commanders tell them, you want logistics, join the army. You know, you're a marine, you make do. <laughs> yeah. uh, because they, they, in fact, have not done a very good job of moving things like you know, food and blankets to... Uh, to to where they need to be. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, almost time uh, to wrap. Ben, because you're our honored guest, do you have a parting shot for us as we, uh, as we close out this podcast? Uh, sure. I was just going to mention uh, just uh, kind of my armchair analysis. The one thing that's interesting about the movie is there's a, there's a big debate in the Navy right now about the future of how are we going to build our ships? Are we going to make them small and fast and agile and flexible? Or are they going to be more like big and have a lot of weapons and well-armored and things like that? And so I found that interesting, you know, that, that that's, that's an idea that's gone in and out of vogue. And then, of course, this movie comes in on the side of they need to be big and armored and have a lot of dumb weapons. So I, I just found that interesting. That's a big, big debate in the Navy going on right now. Dumb, dumb weapons in the sense that you, you give the gun two numbers and, and, you know, press go? Pretty much. Dumb in the sense that they're, they're reliable. They, we know how they work. They've been around for a long time. and They don't rely on a whole lot of... Uh, new systems and command and control and electronic support and intelligence and all of that. Uh-huh. So not, not SeaWiz, though, though SeaWiz played rather a sensational part in this, in this movie. Well, actually, SeaWiz is like a classic example because that's been in the fleet for 20 or 30 years. So oh. we, that's, that's reliable. But, you know, the, the classic example is the littoral combat ship, the new ship that's in the last couple of years. It's got a whole bunch of untried weapon systems. And so the question is, is it going to be able to to do what we need it to do. Uh-huh. Um, you mean destroy aliens and uh, right. do power slides. Because the LCS would have been useless against the aliens because it doesn't have any big guns. It has a lot of radars and complicated systems that all would have been destroyed by the aliens EMP beam or whatever it is yeah, they use. Under the dome. Under the EMP right, under dome. Under the dome. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I feel like this is a faith a problem that's faithfully translated from the board game battleship. Like this tension between the destroyer and the carrier because the carrier seems so much bigger. And if you're in like a race where you both know where each other's fleets are, you would much rather have the carrier than the destroyer. But we've all been in a situation where we can't find the stupid destroyer and it's like hidden somewhere, right? Like, so I definitely feel like that's one thing that the board game gets right. The rest of, of course, the board game spot on simulation of military combat. It's it is the most realistic that you're going to encounter because uh, that's how it works. Naval surface warfare. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Absolutely. So uh, <laughs> after that determination, uh, you can reach us <laughs> at the Overthinking it, uh, podcast at uh, podcast at overthinkingit.com. We had some fun doing listener feedback uh, on the last show, and we'd love to do it again. So uh, send us some email or uh, call or text 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. That's a Google Voice number. So if you leave a message, we can play it on the show, and uh, we can read out the texts. You can send an unlimited number of texts to that without costing us money. So we, you know, we hope to get war and peace, you know what I mean, as a, as a, in SMS form uh, uh, at 203-285-6401. Six four zero one. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Overthinking It, and um, join the conversation in the comments on the show notes. Uh, it remains only to thank Ben Adams for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, and the rest of the panel, uh, you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't You didn't sink my battleship. <laughs> they don't say the line in the movie. They don't. They they pulled their punch. I was very oh. I was very disappointed, especially after like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, dead men tell no tales. It's it's part and parcel of making this kind of adaptation, I think, to find some reasonable way to fit the famous line in right yeah did, did you promise to tell everyone how to contact the tsunami beacon oh yeah it's going to be in the in the show notes okay awesome i just want to make because that is important information i did i did give the while i was <laughs> wasting everybody's time on the podcast i did give the um the uh uh telephone number but yeah i, I hope our listeners call the telephone number and just check in periodically to see if the aliens have landed <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get the oti feedback on that te- they're gonna get that on that telephone number <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be that would be really funny they're gonna know how to knock out our podcast and then they're gonna like <laughs> see this giant dude with a machine gun and they're gonna be like green like what <laughs> <laughs> doesn't make sense <laughs>